Hey folks, welcome back to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream Q&A segment 167. What? <laughs> That's right. Yes. That's right. Here we are, <clears throat> Dr. Brett Weinstein, Dr. Heather Hying, back with you again. We are going to keep this tight today because we went on and on and on and on we, in that first. We went on at length. At, in that first hour. Okay, so from the Discord that we start every hour, every every one of these with a question from the Discord server every week. If you want to be in on that, you should join one of our Patreons and get access, access to the Discord. We have this week a choice between two, and I like them both. I'm just going to go with the first one. Both of them warrant a lot more than a off-the-cuff answer, but let's let's give this a shot. Writers are often considered lazy or unimaginative or anthropocentric when depicting intelligent alien life as too similar to humans. But won't there be some or even many features that end up accompanying intelligence when it happens to develop? How different should we really expect intelligent alien civilizations to be? So I wrote an entire yet unpublished um, science fiction novel investigating exactly this question. And I do think that there are different levels of similarity. So this question seems to be getting at like the intelligence, like what will the intelligence be like? But in terms of the form, it's it's easier to critique. And the critiques that I hear more often are about the form that the organisms take, like the anatomy and physiology. And there is no reason to expect that uh, anatomically and physiologically intelligent life that evolves somewhere else from totally different um, information molecules, you know, from, you know, not from DNA, from the same original building blocks, if you go back far enough, but, uh, you know, it might not even be carbon-based, right? There's, there's just any number of forms that, that intelligent life could take. So um, more often you hear uh, critique about organisms, other intelligent life looking, you know, being bi bipedal, uh, having two eyes now if you've got eyes at all you probably are going to have two of them rather than one and they're probably going to be facing forward so that you can uh so you can do depth perception so there are some things like having uh two pairs of things so that you can triangulate uh with regard to your sense organs two nostrils two ears two eyes uh, but uh the overall form uh we shouldn't expect inherently to repeat um you know, I think you have to be open to the possibility that things will not repeat. On the other hand, the number of ways to build something functional is more limited than it seems. You know, there are lots of canonical forms. and But radial symmetry is a canonical form. Yep. And... But there's a question about whether or not an intelligent creature is likely to have some of the characteristics that we have for reasons that may be less than obvious. And so... But I mean, to your, to your point that you raised in the first thing that we did today, I want to say the first hour, it's not right. Um, you know, octopus. Yep. Don't look anything like us. Yep. Right? They've not only got radial symmetry, but, you know, they've got an ability to... Their, their sense organs, everything about what they do is just different. Right. And yet so, they're highly intelligent. Right. And that's you know, on this planet. Right. But they've got an image forming eye of a separate genesis that functions very similarly with an improvement, actually. Right. So image image forming eyes. Yep. Built of different stuff. They may look different. Uh, will that show up on another planet with intelligent life? Yes. 
will organisms that are highly intelligent have more than one of them? Probably, yes. Right. Right. Um, all I'm saying is I think you have to be open to any level of difference, but should expect certain surprising similarities. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to get boxed into saying, oh, it will be similar because it can be very, very different. But all I'm getting at is that the stuff that led to our intelligence may be um, more... Restrained. Yeah. But what, like what? I mean, that's what the question is. So what, what do you think then? Well, I think uh, emergent consciousness uh, is highly likely that emergent consciousness is pretty likely to involve something, uh, a mechanism that is not... I wouldn't be surprised to see communication via sound. I wouldn't be surprised to see a pair of ears, a pair of eyes. I wouldn't be surprised to see two sexes. I wouldn't be surprised to see sleep. Two sexes, sleep. Uh, sensory organs uh, that may use the same primary senses that we do or may use electricity or magnetism or some of the things that some other organisms on this planet use but that we don't so much or that see outside of our what we call the visible spectrum sure. only because it's visible for us. So yes, you know, sen sensing the world um, by those things that are sensible, 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 um, will happen, and it may not look the way it does for us, um, but there is a limited number of things that are sensible. Right. Right. So, you know, life is almost certain to happen around a star that puts out light. That leaves a inexpensive mechanism for figuring out where the other objects in the world are. Right. Does but the kinds of stars um, that could produce, uh, that, that, that could have planetary systems around them uh, that could have life on them are actually somewhat variable and have different spectra sure. uh, that they emit. And therefore the color sensing and the temperature range in which these organisms uh, may live and therefore what kinds of forms they could take could be wildly different. Well, it's the point where you say, you know, I I'm open to any level of difference, but to the extent that it is likely that given that photons are going to be free, that is to say, you don't have to pay a cost for generating them the way you do with echolocation. That one possibility is that you will see creatures that take advantage of the photons bouncing around that process the location information about objects in ways that are liable to discover the same mechanisms that we have and may be sensitive to different spectrature, may not be color sensitive, probably, you know, to the extent that... Oh, I think there will be color sensitivity um, quickly evolving wherever you have light sensitivity, and light sensitivity will evolve quickly. Yeah, uh, but it will be, di but it may well be different, and and therefore reveal the world in a in a different way. Yeah, but it, you know that would be a small difference. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent, I guess I'm proceeding from what happened when we invented sonar and then discovered how the sonar of a bat works. The answer was actually there were certain canonical problems that we solved very similarly to the way that bats had solved them. Yep. And therefore the parallelism had nothing to do with biotic parallelism. It just had to do with the fact that you've got 
certain kinds of information that has to be processed in certain ways and there are most logical ways to do it and an engineer can figure it out and selection yep. can figure it out so but i would say i guess in terms of locomotion respiration um even probably neurological like you know whatever all might be encompassed in that uh capacity um digestion food acquisition as part of the digestive process all of those could be wildly different in uh on a different planet with different with with different um originating conditions um and we know that in part because all of those things we have examples of wildly different things on earth yep uh and uh the i i, I agree that i think intelligent well that you know sensory systems sleep is going to be a surprising one to people but you know we make this argument in in, yep. in the book and hunter gatherer's guide um that sleep is likely to be a universal for you know any any aliens that show up on earth are going to understand sleep just fine there are plenty of things about us that they won't necessarily have familiarity with but but sleep they'll get dreams as well mm -hmm. right um i would guess you know if a centralized brain and there doesn't need to be a centralized brain but if a centralized brain uh, the thing that we do with lateralization and then tying it back together with the corpus callosum um, so that so that you can both have separate and unified at the same time and in varying degrees um, is very useful. Of course, another way to accomplish that would be something like, um, you know, an, an insect model of having, you know, a lot of different systems that um, are connected to one another, but there's not one central neurological clearinghouse. Uh, so, you know, the CNS, the central nervous system of some differently evolved intelligent life form could look wildly different but will they have sensory input coming in yes will they have motor input uh and and motor output y yes is there going to be highly intelligent life that can't move no because you need to you need the feedback it's got to do yeah. something equivalent yeah you know, i was going to say you know maybe at one life stage maybe like me you know, i'm just like babies right now <laughs> but um but no so so there's going to be sensory and motor um, but it might happen very, very differently, but there will be those things, but that, that's pretty broad. Yep. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how, how far to go. I'm, I'm open to any level of difference. I expect to see surprising similarities and I actually don't expect that we're going to get a chance, but I wish we would. It'd be great. Okay. First question from darkhorseemissions.com. Tiny disruptions to fetal neural development cause schizophrenic thought disorder and severe problems with logical inference. Could microplastics or other toxins be disrupting neural development and therefore the true cause of much of the illogicality of the woke? Could wokeness be a neuropsychiatric dysfunction? So let me just say the, the initial sentence is a claim yep. that sounds right to me, but I don't I don't know that it's correct and there's no reference and the word tiny strikes me as yeah. a little bit too far probably. So if we take off the word tiny, I'm just going to repeat the claim, which is that disruptions to fetal neural development cause schizophrenic thought disorder and severe problems with logical inference. It's, I, I won't say it sounds right. It sounds plausible, but I've yeah. never heard that before. And I don't know, I, I would be surprised if we, we actually had had the tools to assess because it's such a complex system with so many inputs at the baby level that how do you know at the point later that you've got schizophrenia that it's because of yeah um I disruptions agree. to fetal neural development so i want to know what that claim is based on yeah so that's that's a that's a claim that the question is starting with that we are 
saying maybe, but we don't know. Um, however, the rest of the question reads, could microplastics or other toxins be disrupting neural development and therefore the true be the true cause of much of the illogicality of the woke? Could wokeness be a neuropsychiatric dysfunction? Um, I think there's something here, and I wouldn't say the woke specifically. I wouldn't say, um, yeah. you know, I think as we alluded to, I've, I've talked about um, not microplastics, but um, endocrine disruptors, uh, both, you know, both estrogens in the water and and endocrine disruptors in the water may be deranging us endocrinologically, may be partially responsible for a tremendously larger number of people actually being confused about not feeling like they are the sex that they are. Um, I don't think it's by any means the only thing going on, um, nor do I think it's primary, but I do think that it's a problem. So plastics. Yeah. I do think we are disrupting all kinds of things and that um, gender confusion is maybe partially downstream of it. But I also think you've got informational chaos and a developmental environment that does not provide proper feedback. You know, when you screw up thinking about something, you're supposed to get hurt and that is supposed to cause you to get better at thinking. Mm -hmm. And when we have a system in which your confusion about whatever it is is, you know, fostered by a civilization that is equally confused and interested in you remaining confused. It's not surprising that you end up confused. Uh, so, you know, we've got universities that are teaching you that uh, what two plus two equals is up for debate, um, that pedophilia may not be a bad thing, that men can become women. Um, so that is a system that is both cause and effect. Yes, confused people are in that system, but it is also a system that is going to cause confusion and it doesn't require anything chemical, right? It's basically a, um, a failure of the feedbacks that are supposed to make us get smarter, which, uh, you know, life has gotten very easy and that has caused bad thinking to get purged less well. Yeah. Uh, that said, to the, to the actual question, um, could there be some effectively ecotoxicity uh, that is contributing to mass confusion? Yes. Sure. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think it's more likely to, you know, you, you've got a couple different ways that that could work. You could get uh, endocrinological confusion over sex stuff because there are so many xenoestrogens. Um, you could get depression of intelligence. You could get the disruption of the formation of intelligence. You know, lead produces a dis decrease in the capacity to think. Mm -hmm. And there is a part of me, I was forgotten what topic I was on, but I was thinking earlier this week about the confusion that happens to people when they climb to very high altitudes mm. or high elevations. Yeah. Um, where basically the hypoxia causes them to make bad decisions about climbing and descending and stuff like that and it gets people killed mm -hmm. and i'm looking at it civilization and we're doing a lot of stuff that could get us killed and i'm feeling like if we had hypoxia would we know it yeah right yeah it's a little bit too close for comfort mm -hmm. a level of confusion does strike me like what might happen to oxygen starved brains and i'm not arguing it's oxygen starvation right but the equivalent yes people are very very confused mm -hmm. um it you know 
if you were in a room where the breathable air was polluted or low in oxygen, um, do you reason well enough to get yourself out of the room or do you succumb to it? Uh, well, some members of people look around and at the point they don't see anyone else panicking or leaving, they decide that it's just them. Yep. And they, uh, yeah, they ash conformity them their way into death. Yep. Okay, I had, I didn't. The person asking the question had the Tdap vaccination two times in five years, but I was still told to get it while pregnant. I got titers instead. The doctor never had anyone ask for titers, and they weren't covered by insurance. That's not a question, but a but a statement. I feel like we were asked something um, last week. Yeah. Um, about about whether or not to get. I, I think it was the Tdap. Um, during pregnancy and you know our sense was why you would be getting any vaccine while you're pregnant i don't know um and it's not you know is is there some is there plausibly some situation which might arise where that would be the right move okay sure um but um i don't know yeah it's hard uh, that, to it's hard to imagine yeah um, I'm just saying, it, you know, it's not a blanket like absolutely no way under absolutely no conditions could that ever be the right move. But um, the default, the default assumption has to be that's not going to be good for your baby. And um, it, it should wait. It should wait until you don't have the, the, the baby literally on board. In order to get there, it would have to be a disease with a strong likelihood that you would get it. Yep. A huge effect of the vaccine on your ability to tolerate the disease, a low indication, an affirmative low indication of harm to fetuses, which would almost never be good enough. Yeah. But, you know, in other words, if the disease that you're vaccinating for is not rampant, then it doesn't make sense to take that risk, even if in principle there, you know, were it to get you, it would be critically bad for you and or your fetus mm -hmm. if it's not out there in the environment. But if it is yeah, out behavioral there... Behavioral modifications first. If it is out there in the environment, then there's a strong argument that you don't want to be giving it anyway because you don't want to provide an evolutionary landscape for the thing, you know, you don't want to encounter it while you're partially immune. So it would have to be something like there was an outbreak of a terrible disease in a place that meant that you had a limited period of time in which to gain immunity before you would be likely to encounter it. And that if we vaccinate you now, you'll have the immunity by the time you encounter it. And if we don't vaccinate you now, you're liable to encounter it and fare badly. So that's unlikely. Yeah. Um, and... That yeah. is a possible scenario. And, you know, it also requires that, you know, the vaccine is actually safe and effective and the disease has a high, you know, is, well, is highly risky. Safe and effective as far as we know. And then... To the, both you and, you know, to both yeah. mother and, and fetus. Very hard for me to see yeah. the argument for this in in the case of a pregnant person. Yeah. And, you know, to, to the comment... Um, Yes, get your titers done. I mean, this was, I mean, we've talked about this before, but, um, you know, we're both vaccinated against rabies. And uh, I think at 10 years, it's recommended, and it's been a while since we've done it at this point, but at some point, 10 years after we were originally vaccinated, um, the, 
they didn't, they, I don't even remember where this would have been, but they, whoever the doctors were, did not say, go get your, your next rabies vaccinations because it's been 10 years and get your titers checked and see, because there's a good chance if you've got healthy immune systems that you were vaccinated 10 years ago, you've still got, you know, you still got good immunity. And sure enough, we, we did. Yep. So for all of these, the idea of like, oh, it's just been X amount of time, therefore you need Y shot. N- no, <laughs> like we're, we're all different human beings with different kinds of immune systems in terms of their health and their ability to hang on to immunity. And, we, you know, in any of these cases, we should be able to check titers before we agree to another shot. Yeah, I, I have one concern about titers, which is that it's antibody focused. Is it and- entirely? And that's what they're checking. That is. Okay. Um, which, I didn't know. you know, antibodies is part of a story. Yep. T-cells are the other part of the story. And so it's not, you know, my guess is if you've does got... The, does the pro... Does does that... Is that a better indication many, many years out? Or or no? Like if you uh, still got antibodies be, a long ways out, isn't, isn't that a better indicator? Yes. It's right? more likely that your antibody yeah. reaction will fade while you still have T-cell immunity, I believe. Yeah. Um, but in general the degree to which we do not leverage titers and we just inflict shots on you because they're presumed safe is yeah. suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you have advice for raising two boys less than two years apart, helping them get along? Um... Well, I've got a piece of advice. Well, first, I will say that our boys are technically less than two years apart, but um, but by like nine days. <laughs> Nonetheless, right? I think our experience is relevant enough. Um, but they, I, they did great. They did great. We did have them in the same room for most of their early childhood. Yeah, we never let them out. <laughs> They're just in that room. For, I think it was eight years. And but, then we opened the door like, look at the sun. You know, look, I mean... I, I, no, they slept in the same room. They had the same room. Yes. They had the same room. And that... No, and actually it was until they were like 14 and 12, something like that. 11 and 13, 14 and 12, something like that. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, that, you know, I don't know what happens if your kids don't get along, but my sense is good parenting results in kids getting along and the... Having them in the same room uh, causes you to work stuff out. Yep. Um, yeah. So. No, and they became. Um, yeah, they, they were they're almost always good to one another, and uh, when on occasion they weren't, we encouraged or demanded that they deal with it first. And that you know we we were not the first line of defense. Um, yep. Uh, for them against each other ever they, they were expected to interact with one another first and foremost as as the other human being in the interaction and that you know that's that should hold for any of the interactions that you know if 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 the parent is constantly coming in and solving problems for the kid then the kid learns that they don't have to solve the problems for themselves and um certainly getting in between siblings uh, as they are developing um knowledge of how to interact with peers uh, is going to be counterproductive um, anything else? Boys? I think so. I'm... We're just going to run through all these questions very, very quickly. You don't have much to say. Well, I, I, I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> okay. I, you know, we have two kids. We did a lot of stuff that was different. We 
talked to them like they were adults, which was hilarious at first, and then resulted in um, both of them talking back like adults, which I think is good. Um, yeah. Don't protect them from everything. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know that we can say very much about well, them getting along because they do get along. And but the, I mean, this is not just about this is a, do we have advice? And, you know, yes, we have an anecdote in terms of our family. But uh, I guess I would say uh, also that um, boys are more likely than girls probably to get um, to get physical with one another and and let them. Right. Like, you know, don't don't stop that every time it happens and you know give them the space to do so and um sure if it's not dangerous outside encourage them to do it outside but um but do not shy away from their interest in being physical at all and uh that's part of how they're learning you know how to use their bodies and how to be in the world yep have you heard of Electracy, a proposed step post-orality and literacy by Greg Ulmer. It explains the web as a spirit world where lack of ritual and care lead to possession, as in of by spirits or mimetic ideas. So that's sort of obviously, I've never heard of this before, and there's a language of sort of a woo language here, but uh, the idea that we are actually living in in a in a third phase and i've actually some have proposed that it's that the that the web world is more like an oral culture uh less like a literate culture and more like an oral culture the idea that it's got the rules of some third type of um society is interesting and i don't i think i don't have enough information here to say much more than that yeah, I would say. Have you heard of it? No. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely a vacuum that comes from not having a tradition conveyed to uh, to offspring, right? There's a an empty space niche wise in in the soul, and it is not surprising that it gets filled with lots of garbage in an online world where people are free to float whatever version of here's how to be a human being they are persuaded by. So, you know, this is a version of the religion-shaped whole, right? Religion, and I also think it is the case that in recent history, in the last few years, we have watched religious people very frequently outcompete secular folks with respect to resisting bad thinking that was being inflicted on them by uh, governments and large institutions, newspapers, and the coordinated uh, narrative that came from all of those things. So, I, a as we've we've talked about extensively, even scientifically minded people need to figure out what to do with the fraction of the model of the universe that we can't fill in, right? Which is not mm. really a God of the gaps argument. But the point is you have to be able to think carefully about this and carefully about that, knowing that you don't know what goes in between them. And you have to have some way to give yourself license to jump in that, you know, if you convince yourself that it's all one unified story and that you are in on it, 
then you're going to end up telling yourself a lot of lies at the places where we really don't know what's going on. So religious people have a very easy one, right? They are licensed to jump any gap because, you know, because they in general believe in a marvelous creator. And so here are the things we understand and here are the things we don't and we're comfortable with mystery. Um, so if you put God aside on the basis that uh, he, she, or it fails to exist, and you leave open, therefore, well, how am I going to deal with the mystery part of what I'm faced with? It's not surprising that people get parasitized by bad thinking. Hmm. It's a vulnerability. And so anyway, I'm not sure I would describe it according to the taxonomy that the, the person asking the question has presented that does sound a bit woo. But yeah, there's something something going on with... Um, memes, beliefs that have not stood the test of time being way more contagious than they should be by virtue of um, a mind opened by atheism and then exposed to fads. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember. I, I, don't, I don't have time to dig into my computer here and find it, but... There are some um, generalities uh, put together by, I think it's Walter Ong, who wrote this uh, classic treatise, uh, Orality to Literacy, in the 60s, maybe, late 50s, 60s, early 70s, something like that, um, in which he describes the sort of the, the canonical, if you will, to use that the word of the day here, um, thing, true things about oral cultures versus literate cultures. And I am, I, I would, I would have to go back and remind myself of some of the differences um, between them. But uh, you know, one of the things may mm, now I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to misspeak if I try to pull up any of them from memory because it's been a while. Um, but the idea that there might be a third list, you know, a third set of of structures of ways that we tend to interact with one another in this world that is dominated by, uh, I don't know, this says um, the web, you know, maybe it's more than the web, it's social media, some, some, I don't know exactly what the descriptor is, like what the fundamental thing, whereas an oral culture versus a literate culture, you can tell what the distinction is. So, you know, it, you know, what portion of your world are you engaging in on the web that makes it like that kind of a culture? Um, the idea that there might be distinguishing features uh, and maybe it's not like a return to an oral type of a culture, but actually a, a, a different thing is intriguing to me and I'd like to know more. Yep. And whatever is going on in the AI space is going to disrupt this because it's going to yeah. be possible to be a very articulate parrot, right? You're going to be able yes. to say yes. wonderfully intelligent things that you don't really understand or that you think you thought of, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. You got it from this artificial intelligence. And uh, yeah, and it's not, you know, people don't, there won't be the same taboo against plagiarizing an AI, right? Like if you hear it, if, you know, if you go online and you, and you do something and it comes up on Quora, you're like, well, okay, you most people will have the sense of like, well, I got to attribute this. Like, this is where I heard this or like, you know, because they know there's a person behind it. There's a person who wrote that thing to them. Uh, whereas not, you know, knowing that that thing isn't a person, 
um, sort of takes away the responsibility to honor it with attribution. Yeah, well, in part, people, you know, people react badly um, if you plagiarize them. Right. The AI presumably doesn't care. Right. And so people will be liberated. They will not yes. get the feedback of yes. um, doing it. And yes. uh, I do... And it won't be as trackable either, right? Like, I don't even think they will understand. They who? The, the AI people, or the people? The people. Mm -hmm. They're not going to know what they're doing. They're going to think they are saying intelligent things because they're going to get a reaction from other people as if they're saying intelligent things. And they are technically saying them, but it's like reading yeah. them. It's like reading Shakespeare and not understanding what you're saying right yeah like reading it just for the meter or something you could imitate somebody's presentation of shakespeare that was very good emotive and, in the right place right and the yeah. audience might love it yeah and the point is oh i'm pretty good with shakespeare really maybe <laughs> you're not right yeah um, yeah so anyway I'm, I'm yeah i'm very concerned that um People are going to take this, the issue of you have to take what you deserve credit for very seriously and not lie to yourself about it in order to get smarter. And the yeah. fact that there's something that probably is not going to enforce this, everybody has access to it. And so people are going to leap to put things into the public discussion quickly that they've gotten from the AI. I, I just don't see how this can't. Uh, I don't see how it's going to avoid ending very, very badly. Yeah. Many fantasy creatures have pointed ears. For instance, orcs and elves. What evolutionary benefit does this provide and why don't we have them? Big on this question. Um, my first reaction was, well, they're cute. They're so cute. Okay, but why do we find them cute? Why do we find them cute? We find them cute in part. Um, because mammals who were so external pinnae, which is the like technical term for ears. Obviously we have internal things that we call ears, but the external thing that we call ears, which for some reason we use the same word for, are technically called pinnae. Um, <clears throat> that's the fleshy part that you can see. That's a mammal synapomorphy. That's a shared derived characteristic of mammals <clears throat> and only mammals. And so um, imagine, you know, a cat or a mouse, or a bunny rabbit, or even a giraffe. Uh, and uh, you can see them, and they, you know, they flick their ears. They What is it, the caracal that does the, whoosh, my God, the, the, just the most beautiful ear move ever, with a really long tuft at the end. And uh, But all of these animals, if you watch them um, in real time, but then especially if you watch a slow motion video of them, they're just doing interesting things with their ears that are, yes, them sensing the environment, but also, therefore, if you're paying the right kind of attention to them, you can pick up on ways that they are interacting with the environment. And maybe they're communicating with them. Sometimes they're actually using their ear movements to communicate, but more often they're using their ear movements to sense the outside world, and then that can give you a sense of what it is they're doing. Um, Ours are plastered against our head and not attractive. Um, you know, sorry, all you ear fetishists out there, but like, you know, you know, compared to a cat's ears, sorry, we just don't, we don't have it going on. And, um, and it would be adorable if we not, I don't know about the elf thing with them still plastered against the head. It seems to me that there's think... no functionality to that at all. But if they're up here and we could 
if you can move them. Yeah, I, that'd I be think awesome. it's actually about aim. Um, and the, the mm -hmm. idea is the pointed ear for a creature that can pivot its ear, the ability to tune in and therefore tune out things that are adjacent sound-wise yeah. is a critical capacity. Mm -hmm. And so creatures with very acute, so for us, you know, we can point an ear by pointing our head, but you can't isolate a sound that way, um, or at least not very well. But an animal that can point one ear, you know, and swing it so it points in only that direction and therefore tunes in, you know, the same way you pivot your eyes to look, you mm -hmm. know, at, at somewhere with your fovea. I, I think it, it has that function. And so why we don't have them is because we don't have the ability to move our ears separately and um, and tune into a particular sound. Um, but I think we find it cute because creatures that do have them uh, are cute. You know, a fox is a very lovely creature and it has some very pointy ears. Um, and so we infer. But what right, that seems circular to me. Why? Why do we find them cute? Well, we find lots of things cute because they trigger. Um, yeah, I was going to say because it triggers, you know, parental uh, reflexes. But I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think you know they're. Yeah, I don't quite have it. Yeah, I don't quite have it either. Uh, and also, I realize that some of the examples I gave um, just have um, the pointing up ears, but they're not, like, mouse ears aren't pointy. They're rounded. Um, and, you know, rabbit ears aren't pointed. They're they're elongate, but they're not pointed. Uh, but I think most people would agree that they're cute, too. And they also do, yeah, know, they do this independent movement thing. Um, and I can't, I honestly... Having a hard time visualizing an orc at the moment. I don't remember where their ears are in their heads. Um, elves, um, yeah, it's it's. I think that that's very unlikely to have happened. Actually, pointed ears that are basically plastered against the side of your head, unless there is some ability to do this, which you know maybe that is what elves are supposed to be able to do. I don't know. I'm not familiar with elven lore. No, I, well, I agree with you that yeah. you don't, you shouldn't expect to see the pointedness, unless it has a separate reason for existing. The pointedness should go hand in hand with the ability to pivot the... Unless they've got like the caracal things on them and it's just a, it's a, it's well, a, the it's a display. In the caracal case, I think it is No, but elven signal. ears with a, with, with oh. the, with the tufts on them. So they're using the points to, yep. to display their awesomeness to each other. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Um, let's see. We have a three-part question from Echo here. Aspirin, acetylsalicylic acid, was the miracle drug. Oh, aspirin, acetylsalicylic acid, colon, was the miracle drug propaganda about patenting. It's inspired by white willow bark, salicylic acid, used by ancient Sumerians and Egyptians. Uh, NB. Hydroxychloroquine is inspired by Artemisia annua, used in Asia and Africa against paludism, whose use who formally discouraged in 2012, um, with many papers against Artemisia annua, to force people to buy hydroxychloroquine, which is more concentrated. 
So I'm getting something out of this. Yeah. I'm also reading it, and it, for some reason, they're not in the right order, so I'm having to jump around here. Um, so, so I, th- I think, well, you, you want to riff a little bit? I'm trying to figure out what. No, so far, all I've gotten is that there is a tendency to propagandize the, you know, it's some version of the pharma game, where there's, there's a tendency to propagandize the usefulness of a molecule, the safety of a molecule. Well, that's the question was the miracle drug propaganda this is from last week right about patenting and if i remember correctly i think actually it had just fallen out of patent i think bayer had patented aspirin originally and at the point that the spanish flu came it was just out of patent and so now more widely available to be produced by others i think i'm not positive about that but i think it was not a patent game so at that point sounds to me from the question i i can't speak to which version it is that maybe acetyl salicylic acid was the replacement for salicylic acid from Willowbark, and that that might have uh, reinvigorated or provided the opportunity for patenting. So I, I don't know. The question is, did Bear have a patent at the point that the Spanish flu was rampant? And I, I don't know the answer. Yeah, I think it had just ended. Um, but, you know, the game with... Uh the two forms of chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. It's true. You know, it, 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 and the fact that that game is played isn't um, inherently egregious, but it is our job. You know, that this is what organizations like the FDA are supposed to be, are supposed to be monitoring and, and, taken care of. Like no, that's, I, that's what they're supposed to be doing. Like, I think of course that, people will do this. I think that I, of course people will do it. I do think it's egregious. Well, yeah, but that's what like that's what the that's what the organizations like the FDA, that's that's what the governmental organizations are supposed to take care of. Well, but we are we're caught in a bind where we have the profit motive in places that it does not belong. Mm. Right? If the job mm. of making people healthy is um, really what medicine is about, then the point is the move of trying to convince people to take this molecule rather than that molecule because you have a patent on it yeah. should be illegal. Yeah. Either this is a public phenomenon, in which case profit ought to be taken out of it because health is too important, or it's buyer beware. And what we have is the worst of both worlds where mm-hmm. we have the patent game, uh, the pharma game, we have the capturing of the regulators game, and uh, we are not, you know, what happened to buyer beware in the era of COVID? We weren't allowed to beware. It was actually formally declared misinformative to try to watch out for your own interests, right? Right. To listen to people who dissented. So, you know, it is the destruction of the instinct to make people healthier and the replacement of that instinct um, by some remote entities desire to make money mm-hmm. and it is absolutely it is egregious so i want one or the other i either mm-hmm. want to know that i'm yep. you know getting a sales pitch that i should ignore it uh or i want to know that this has nothing to do with profit because it would be impossible for anyone to make one i don't i don't want them to, i don't want to be shamed for noticing that somebody is making a profit for their mandated product that is being inflicted on me despite having been poorly tested by the very people who are making that money. Yeah. 
And that's you being unreasonable again. Uh, yeah. Once again. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to make of this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Some two parts. My own research um, asks, did Elton misinterpret the population cycles? Are the population cycles an active colonization mechanism? Um, wherein population cycles are called invasion pulses, so could they be an active mechanism? Well, I don't know exactly what this is referring to. The idea of overpopulation triggering the exploration for new territory certainly makes sense. It doesn't... It's missing a step because it is unnecessary. You can build wanderlust in at any level of... um, proximity to carrying capacity if it's desirable having to overshoot the carrying capacity in order to motivate people or creatures to move is um wasteful so it doesn't have the look of an adaptation the wanderlust does and that it would be triggered by overpopulation Mm -hmm. but the overpopulation does not have the look of an adaptation a totally different topic hmm I saw a sticker on a car that read MILF, man, I love frogs, with an image of one. It reminded me of someone we know. Now I'll be looking for one that begins MIL with two L's. Lizards? Man, I love lizards. Man, I love leopards. I have to say, um, I think civilization went wrong and possibly unrecoverably wrong. That was the moment. At MILF. Yeah, that, yeah, was, that is, was the branching point. It is point. such a despicable concept. Yeah. Um, that, anyway, I don't necessarily need to see it resurrected around love of frogs. <laughs> but it is better than the uh, the original meaning. Yeah. Uh, you can be sure that if 2001 was written in 2023, we'd know Hal's pronouns. Man. Yeah. Man. Uh, here's a suggestion on the topic of AI. Please consider interviewing Rob Miles from Computer File. Okay. You know? No. You know that? I don't. Okay. Just screenshot that. Um, we may apply gender to things seen as conscious because we have two sexes. Yep. Absolutely. We impose it. Yeah, we impose it. I, I think it's an I think it's an error. But I'm not certain of that. It, fe- it feels like it opens up the room for confusion and then to be for that confusion to be taken advantage of as it is. But um, but I think that may be part of part no, of what exists. I, I think you're I think you're right. And I also think that there is potentially a protective going through the formal exercise of making sure that you call the AI it. Yeah. And not he or she is probably useful because it forces you to consciously recognize that you don't know what that thing is, but if there's one thing it isn't, it's, um, it's a not creature. a he or a she. It's not, it's not a descendant of the same tree of life. Right. Yes, that's right. Do LLMs not just help us understand the limits of language as a culturally evolved model of reality? There are other modes of communication. Kind of. Um, the thing about language is that it so far outstrips the next nearest competitor. And even 
to the extent that you can come up with an argument for the next nearest competitor being better than I'm giving it credit for, it's in the context of creatures that have language. And so, yes, you know, I can learn to communicate something very complex to you without saying anything, but it's not as if that does not come on a substrate of having spoken. So anyway, the right. thing the thing about right. language is yeah. it allows you to transmit abstractions between minds so that they can be parallel processed. Nothing else does that, right? At least not uh, regularly. And if something else does it, it can't, you know, you can't pick any abstraction and convey it some other mode. You might have an abstraction that you could convey, um, but uh, in, 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 in other words, Language is the thing that makes humans special. Is it totally without an analog elsewhere in the animal kingdom? No, but the point is the difference between language and the next nearest uh, counterpart is so great that although it is a difference in degree, the difference in degree is so large as to make it a separate function. It does not feel like I've said that very clearly. But no, I, I think this is I think this is important. I didn't. I didn't understand the question the same way you did, but I think, I think what you're saying here is is very important. There are, of course, many modes of communication, and back to where we started with the Q and A, you know, the the various ways that we sense the universe are, you know, reflective of real things that can be sensed in the universe. So, um, but you know, the the sensing is entirely receptive, <clears throat> and um, communication, of course, requires both a signaler and a receiver. And uh, language, which you know now can sometimes be visual, but usually is using um, audio, requires not just that there's the ability to produce, but also to receive the sound, and then all of the all of the complexity there. Um, you know, smell just doesn't have the complexity possible for it. To oh it. yeah, um, you know. Touch could communicate a tremendous amount, but um, the ab the the abstraction is not is not there. You you'd have to use language. You could yeah. convey things by you know making letters with your fingers, but the point is you're then borrowing from the language module. So it's really it's inconceivable that another mode does what language does. And I would also just point out that this is obvious in the sense that it takes a human being, you know, a, a decade to gain even moderate facility with this mode, mm -hmm. right? That's not idle time. That's not like, you know, the tongue takes that long to develop to be able to make the sounds. That's, you have to learn the subtleties of how to convey things, and it's not easy, yeah. right? It's a slow process. Yeah. Okay, let's do two more questions here. What is the evolutionary explanation for psychiatric conditions? What are the evolutionary advantages of psychiatric conditions? Um, it's such a giant category. You've got to be very careful not to assume that because there is something called a psychiatric condition that you assume it's an adaptation. The thing yep. about adaptations is... Yep. They are the result of a process that allows them to spread 
and to be augmented. And many of the things that we call psychological conditions are dysfunctions. They are the opposite of adaptations. And, you know, it's very tempting because somebody who has schizophrenia may produce something creative to say, oh, it's an adaptation and we treat it as if it's a dysfunction. Now, it's a genuine dysfunction, which doesn't mean that it doesn't open doors every now and again. But, mm. um, but anyway, th there's a category error with adaptations and, and dysfunction. Okay, but still, um, explanation. So um, it, it may just be dysfunction, right? Well, yes, although uh, we make the argument in our book that many of these disorders have, let's take schizophrenia, for example, has um, a surprising overlap with the symptoms of sleep. That is to say, when you sleep, you uh, may believe that a narrative is unfolding that isn't. You have conversations with people who don't exist. Um, you may be paranoid that someone is after you. Uh, all of those things, if they happen to you when you're asleep, you then it's followed up by usually amnesia. There was paralysis while it happened, and so you just kind of ignore it. But the point is, yeah. nope, you were either stark raving mad while you were asleep or there's an adaptive explanation for it while you're asleep and it happens that the same stuff affects you when you're awake and when it does we call it schizophrenia or hallucinations that are the result of having taken an entheogen mm -hmm. the fact that those three things have the same set of symptoms um, is suggestive that schizophrenia and probably uh bipolar disorder um, are the dream circuitry, which is adaptive, running at a time that it shouldn't when you're awake. Do you think bipolar too? Yeah, I do. Hmm. Um, in any case, something like that. You've got an adaptive circuit running where it shouldn't, right? Um, and that that would explain the pattern and the hint of an adaptation in something that's clearly... Um, dysfunctional. All right. Final question. Is there an evolutionary case to be made against humans eating bugs? Um, is there an evolutionary case? Clearly not, because there are many cultures that do eat their share of bugs and, you know, even so-called... sometimes other people share as well. You said they eat their share of bugs. Oh. Even a lot of us aren't eating any bugs. They probably eat They're more probably than their share. They're probably eating our share of bugs, yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, our culture, to the extent that our culture is even a thing, <laughs> uh, eats bugs of the sea, arthropods of the sea, yeah. uh, even if not terrestrial insects. Yeah. Not and... technically insects, but arthropods. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so anyway, none of this is an argument for us uh, industrializing the scale of bug production and uh, inflicting it on people with propaganda. Um, <laughs> right. But no, I don't think there's any, there can be no argument against any bug eating given the number of human cultures in which some bug eating goes on. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, I think we, we answered some question about bug eating before, insect eating before, and someone said, but what about the chitin? 
like I have not looked into it and I thought, well, you know, it's possible the chitin isn't good for you, that it's, you know, it, it, it makes sharp little bits in your, in your gut and might cause some micro perforations. I don't know. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of the bug eating that happens, say, um, in Amazonia, uh, for instance, tends to be, uh, larval forms, right? Uh, Pretty grubby. Uh, very grubby, very, very grubby. Uh, or like the meaty, the... The, the body meat of like big juicy spiders like tarantulas mm. yeah mm. Okay, i don't i, I don't want to eat that i really i don't want to have to eat that i have you know I have, I have tried some bugs um actually just when i was in mexico uh, i met a couple of people and uh we went to a mezcal bar and got a little appetizer of just like deep fried ants or something and they just it just tasted crunchy it's like this is fine i don't i don't think this is bad for me i don't think it's good for me i think it's like it's ants Yep. Um, I'd rather eat those than the body of a tarantula. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tarantula, tarantula farming is slow. Oh God. Um. But anyway, yeah, you know, I, I would say, um, a if it's hard parts of their bodies, there's all kinds of technologies for pulverizing stuff. Um, but again, I large scale is different than occasional or yeah long-standing bug-eating traditions yeah and yeah long-standing i don't there there are no cultures um i am highly confident this is true there are no cultures where insects uh provide the majority of protein in their diet right right like there, there are plenty of cultures where insects are a regular piece of their diet or there might even be a few things that are delicacies that we would not regard as delicacies at all and of course that's going to be true across you know for lots of things besides insects uh but i there's whereas you know there are lots of pastoralist cultures that rely on um having domesticated mammals usually uh and eating mostly the flesh and blood of those mammals there aren't dedicated insectivorous human cultures that's just not a, that's not a thing right and there are some cultures uh that have a taboo against eating insects like um the elite of davos they do not eat insects mm. they think that we will eat insects <laughs> while we are delighting over not owning anything and being so happy i'll bet some of them would uh would eat some some forms on, in some very specialized uh context no i think mostly what it is i mean is... these are people who who like escargot oh no? sure that is very different um no How? my feeling is the elite of davos i don't want to eat snails would agree to eat a very small number of insects in exchange for our agreeing to own nothing and be happy that's the circumstances in which we will find those people eating insects and otherwise i don't think so you may be right. All right. We'll be back next week. Mm. Same time, same place. Uh, with a Q&A next week as well. And uh, in the meantime, check out Natural Selections. Check out our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide. Come find us at 11 a.m. Pacific time tomorrow, Sunday, March. What's that going to be? The 26th? Uh, when at my Patreon we have a live private Q&A we get to interact with, uh, with you guys who are watching live and then we leave it up uh, if you want to catch it later and um, until then until, until we see you next time be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside be well everyone <laughs>